Please turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 16. We come this morning to a, a milestone for us as a church. This is the 61st sermon in the book of Mark and the last sermon that I'll be preaching in the book of Mark, which takes us back to somewhere in 2019 when the series began. I was reflecting, if you've been in every sermon, all 61 sermons, I have not preached all 61. We've had others. Um, John Choi preached last Sunday in my place, and I listened to his sermon and appreciated his work in the Word. But if you have listened to all 61 of these sermons, I thought about just the catalog of biblical truth that you will have gained and the supreme value and the blessing you have to have elders who expect and encourage the minister, the preacher in this church, to move through books of the Bible, whole books of the Bible, covering not just what is fashionable or pleasant or enjoyable or what the preacher may happen to be knowledgeable of or good at, but the entire uh, spectrum of, of Scripture which reminds me, in your bulletin, there is a note that the next sermon series will be a series of 10 messages in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. And that series will take us up to Thanksgiving. I'll be adding in a few um, other texts in that series, so we'll cover Psalm 8, and we'll cover Proverbs 8, and a couple of other passages that deal with the beauty and the marvels of God's creation as we kick off the, uh, the school year, for those of you who are students. So this morning, though, we come to the end of Mark, and I will not be covering the so-called longer ending of Mark, which begins at verse 9 to 20. Some of your Bibles have a, have a break in that part of your Bible, and I'm not going to get into why I'm not going to cover that this morning, but if you'd like to ask me why we're not going to be covering that from the pulpit, I'm happy to talk with you about that. This morning's passage, and I believe Mark's gospel, concludes with verse 8, and so we'll be covering verses Mark. 1 through 8 of Mark chapter 16. As we begin this morning, I'm thinking of the phrase, getting a do-over. My brother has on the counter of his kitchen a, uh, a little button with a dollar sign on it. And when he, his wife sells something online, when she has a little online business, her he makes some money in his business, they, they hit the dollar sign, and it's just a way of encouraging them that they're making progress on their financial goals. Uh, I think the first button like that that I saw was, was it from Staples or somebody, that that was easy. What if we had a do-over button? You could punch the do-over button. I don't get to do it as much as I'd like, but in golf, a do-over is called a mulligan. Often, though, I've noticed golfers don't do any better on the second shot than they did on the first shot. After all, when they approach the ball the second time, they haven't taken any lessons. They probably didn't pull out a, a, a new set of clubs. And if you can shank it once, you can shank it twice. Many a groan and sigh has uttered from a golfer's mouth after wasting a mulligan and hitting almost exactly the same shot as you did the first time. See, mulligans can't turn around the effects of a bad or non-existent practice habits. 
They can't take away impatience, distractedness, or overall poor hand-eye coordination. Mulligans can't reverse a bad golf game. But far worse than a bad golf game, and to the point of our text this morning, are habits of life that sinners have adopted. Instead of consistently hitting with a slice, as some golfers do, sinners consistently try to make sense of life without God or without God's people. And this tendency is the result of something that we should know as the power of sin and death, which has every single human in its grip and under its sway. You and I this morning are in the grip of death. The Anglican liturgy, which is so beautiful, says, in the midst of life, we are in death. This isn't just the inevitable decay of your bodies, the loss of memory, the loss of, of capacity, of strength, the aches and pains, all of that is sign that death is at work in the world. But it's the consistent and seemingly unavoidable habit of trying to live your life apart from God. The power of death may even be seen in the very young who, innocent though they may appear, even at their age, death is at work in their hearts and in their bodies. Every mortal in the power of death is drawn helplessly, if I may use a Star Wars example, like one of the X-wing fighters caught in the tractor beam of the Empire's Death Star. If I may use an example from nature, every mortal is caught like a fly in the sticky webs of a spider. And however so much you may buzz your wings, you cannot be extracted in the grip of death. And it is into this world that the resurrection of Jesus comes as a giant no, no with an exclamation point. His being buried in the grave for three days acknowledges the power of death. His rising from the dead on the third day marks the beginning of the reversal of death in the world. And so this morning's message in our text details the very first movements of death's reversal. This isn't the whole story, but it is the beginning. In the women who appear at the tomb of Jesus, who come prepared to anoint his corpse, are shocked beyond belief to discover that the tomb where they had laid the body of our Lord is in fact empty, and in its place are grave clothes which bound him and an angelic messenger which delivers the news that he is risen. This morning's text is the, is the closing scene of our redemption. The proof of this redemption is that in our passage, Christ has emerged as a conqueror from the jaws of death, snatching victory from certain defeat, showing that beyond a shadow of a doubt, he has the power in himself of new life. Death has lost the victory. Christ is the king. But this is what our text means. It isn't what our text says. Our text is very spare in its explanation. It, end, it is, ending as it does at verse 8, simply describes the empty tomb. We're left with the entire rest of the Gospel of Mark and then the rest of the New Testament to piece together what this passage means. 
What we have in Mark 16, 1 through 8, is the bare fact of the empty tomb, explained by an angel in the simplest of terms, and the reaction of the women to this news. The resurrection does explain the empty tomb. So the title of my sermon this morning is The Empty Tomb. It shows what is important about the absence of Jesus in our story. Jesus doesn't appear in this text. Death is reversed. And as the story progresses, we see it moving through three scenes or three different places. We see the story first on the way to the tomb. We see the story at and then in the tomb. And then finally, we see the story as the women are fleeing the tomb. Those will be my three points this morning. And following the sermon, or following these points, I want to challenge or provoke you to consider whether you yourself might be in the power of death, and if so, how? How you might possibly escape. Let's begin then by reading God's holy word, Mark chapter 16, beginning at verse 1. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where, he laid, where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Father, thank you for this portion of your holy scriptures and for the gospel of Mark. As we consider what you have for us this morning, I pray that the words of my mouth the thoughts and meditations on each one of our hearts this morning would be pleasing in your sight. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The first scene, the first place that our story has, has us is on the way to the tomb, on the way to the empty tomb. This is covered in the first four verses of chapter 16. What we see in this scene is an example of the women both in their faithfulness and in their forgetfulness. I want you to notice, first of all, that the women in our text are a model of faithfulness. You see, anointing a body with fragrant spices or oils or aromatic perfumes was part of the burial custom or tradition in ancient Israel. It was commanded in the scriptures as an act of devotion intended to honor the dead. Now, chemically, scientifically, these oils and ointments and lotions would help to cover the, the smell of a decaying corpse. But it wasn't just for aesthetic or uh, aromatic reasons that these oils were applied to a dead body. Why would the law encourage such a ceremony? 
in a time before Christ's coming and before a full and ample revelation of God about the nature of life beyond the grave, the anointing of a body was intended to confirm not only faith in a general resurrection, but that this person would not remain dead forever. In the blessed aroma of the spices was to be perceived by faith the blessed aroma of a life beyond the grave. So the, the women play a role of faithfulness in anointing Jesus' body. On Saturday night after the Sabbath had ended, at sundown they had went and purchased, probably at some expense, the oils and lotions and different perfumes that they were going to use. Then very early in the morning, they, they approached the grave where he is laid. And it's just the women that are told that is doing this. One commentator notes that when all the male disciples have deserted, the women are still there, faithful to the last. And it will be to them that the message of the resurrection will be entrusted in a society that gave no legal status to the testimony of women. God saw fit to entrust the crucial, critical lifeline of the message of resurrection to these faithful women. Everything will come to depend, will hang on what these women say and do. These women and their testimony form a crucial link in the discipleship story. Calvin explains that the Lord gave them in this a temporary apostolic commission, which was to announce the gospel to the men so as to become their instructors. And why not? The guys had deserted the Lord in the hour of his trial as he predicted, and the women had not. How like God is it to bring the gospel to the high and proud by the sources which they least expect? How like, is it, how like our God is it to bring the good news of salvation from a location or a venue that you would normally disregard as a way of reminding all of us and teaching us that what is important in the proclamation of, of the gospel is, not oft, is often not what we think. Now that this is a temporary apostolic commission is obvious because our text tells us that the women are going to report to his disciples and Peter. It's as if Jesus is saying in this verse, in verse 7, that the apostolic band has not been dissolved. They're not off the hook, nor are they going to be punished for their desertion. But in his mercy, he is reconstituting them in Galilee. They are to get the message to his disciples. So the group continues even after he died, even after he was raised, even after Peter, who denied him three times. Peter is specified and stipulated. Even Peter is to be at this meeting. Peter's not out of it yet. But they're also faithful, not just in the, the message, but in the way that they attend to the body in the first place, John pointed out last Sunday in talking about Joseph of Arimathea that Joseph risked his reputation in being associated with this, this criminal who's hanging on the cross, and even his dead body had the possibility of incurring not just the wrath of the Jews, but the wrath of the Romans. The women are taking a similar risk. But they are faithful. 
So they ignore any harm that might come to themselves or their reputations and make all haste to where their crucified Messiah they thought lay in the tomb. But just as we see the women modeling faithfulness here, we also see them struggling with forgetfulness. What did they forget? Well, first of all, you can see along the way, they realize in verse 3, they're saying to one another, who will roll the stone for us away from the entrance of the tomb? Now, I don't think it's that they just sort of forgot something on the checklist. I think in the hurry of the moment, this was a, a hasty burial. They were hastening to bury the body of Jesus before the Sabbath, before other things could happen to it. I think in the, in the shocking and, and uh, anticlimactic end to their Lord's life, they were filled with an unusual degree and an amount of grief and sadness. But it's an important detail that they neglected. Most cave tombs in Jesus' day were of a square variety, which is to say the opening of the tomb was in the shape of a square, and the seal or the stone that would close it was sort of like a cork that was kind of chiseled in a narrow end, and it was placed in there uh, in that manner. But the tombs of the wealthy, and we have some of these in archaeological discoveries, had a round opening and were closed with a round stone. And the round stone was significantly larger and heavier than the square stone. The, the research that I read said a square stone could weigh up to 500 pounds, but the circular stone, which was positioned to the side of the entrance, and there was a groove that would run across the entrance that once this, this stone was rolled into place, it would, be, it would sit and settle in in a way that it couldn't easily be opened again. These stones weighed anywhere from 1,500 to 3,000 pounds, I'd say that they had missed an important detail. Who's going to roll the stone away from the tomb? In their grief, they forget to think about the tomb's opening, but they continue anyway, perhaps assuming that someone or some people, when they get there, can help them with their sacred task. And it's interesting, our, our text has an interesting word in verse 4, and looking up. In my mind's eye, in this scene, the women are on the way to the tomb and they're, they're kind of looking down, they're talking at each other and they don't realize as they approach, they turn the corner or they come into the clearing in the garden where Jesus is buried. This is a, a Joseph's family tomb. It's hewed into the rock, hewn into the rock. And as they turn the corner, they look up. It's as if the very posture on their faces and their bodies looking down, they're forgetting something. And we can tell they're forgetting by the way that their heads are positioned. And the beginning of their non-forgetting or their remembering begins as they look up. They saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. Yes, they were right to be concerned, but no, they didn't need to be concerned because they had forgotten something. This aspect of their forgetfulness shows that he had told them, just as he told you, verse 7, that he would go before them into Galilee after he had been raised on the third day. They knew this, but they had forgotten, or perhaps, as so often the case, they didn't ever really truly understand it. Have you ever been told something? And then you're told again, and you're like, 
Oh, okay. I heard that before, but now I really get it. Parents, this happens all the time when you realize things that your parents told you, and now that you're a parent, it makes a whole lot more sense. They had heard it, but hadn't really considered it deeply. They hadn't paid proper attention to it. In this, their faithfulness was mixed with forgetfulness, and their loyalty lacked the understanding that it should have. They were devoted, but spiritually dumb. They were eager, but their eagerness was spoiled by their own earthly motives and concerns. So that's the first scene on the way to the tomb. The second scene, which begins at verse 5, as I said, or verse 4, and looking up, they see that the stone had been rolled back, and then they, so they're at the tomb, and then verse 5, they enter the tomb. This is the second scene. What do we see about the women in the second scene? I think we see, first of all, that they're weak with fear. They're weak with fear. Entering the tomb, in verse 5, they see a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. They were terrified, really. And he said said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified, the crucified one. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Their initial reaction is shock and amazement. First, at seeing the stone rolled away. This would be shocking enough. But then they go into the doorway of the tomb and they see a young man clothed in bright white clothing, which is an indication that he is an angel is sitting on the right side and speaking to them. This brings their fear to a whole new level. In Mark, this isn't uncommon. Again and again, when characters and people in Mark's story experience the power of God, they are revealed to have have fear. So too the women following suit are fearful. They are weak with fear. But the angel, recognizing this, seeks to reassure them and says, Do not be afraid. And the explanation that he gives to them, the comfort that he offers them, is that Jesus has risen from the dead. Look, see the place where they laid him. It's interesting that to assure them, he doesn't show them Jesus. In this story, Mark is careful. He's a theologian and he's recording specific things that he wants you to see. And he wants you to see that the encouragement they're given is the news of his resurrection, not Jesus himself. That will come later, and the other Gospels record for us the many appearances that Jesus makes to his disciples, including to the women. It's a statement of fact. It's a statement. It's a fact. It's the place where he was laid. There were many sort of uh, chambers within this family tomb of Joseph, and they showed him in probably one of the rooms in this this multi-roomed family tomb, they showed him the place where Jesus had laid, and, and though Mark doesn't tell us, the grave clothes would have been there, lying in the place where he had been placed. How do you interpret an empty tomb? The angel gives you the interpretation. He's alive. He's risen. He's not here. And the women were confronted with, with an opportunity or a challenge to interpret this moment 
whether they would accept and receive the instruction, the teaching, the comfort of the angel or not. Some, in seeing that the tomb was empty, have interpreted it differently. They've rejected the instruction of the angel. They said, oh, well, Joseph of Arimathea came and he took the body. He was, he was in cahoots with the disciples. Or perhaps the gardener of John 20, 15 took the body. Or maybe the religious leaders themselves took the body in cahoots with Joseph, who was a member of the council. Maybe Joseph wasn't the righteous man that Mark says that he was. They didn't want people to venerate his dead body, and so they, they hid it away. Maybe Jesus wasn't really dead after all when he was put in there. Sure, the angel says he rose, but just because he's not there, it doesn't mean that he actually, literally, physically rose from the dead. Perhaps he was in a state of suspended animation, which revived after he was buried. Perhaps he was under the effect of narcotics given to him by his friends, like a, some mystery show or crime show that you might see on TV. Perhaps then he was released by the disciples, but how could they commit their lives if that was the interpretation of the empty tomb? How could they commit their lives to a fraud or a hoax like that? I mean, Peter, James, and John, all three will surrender their lives. In fact, all 11 of the disciples, according to church history, will wind up giving their lives for the cause of the gospel. Well, maybe they gave their lives believing that Jesus actually rose from the dead, but it was Joseph and Nicodemus and some other of Jesus' sort of co-conspirators that foisted the hoax upon the disciples. Maybe that's how you would interpret the empty tomb. But I don't know about you, if I'm Nicodemus or Joseph of Arimathea, I'm at the, the tippity-top of the pyramid in ancient society. I'm an upper-class citizen. I've got a multi-chambered family tomb. I'm a member of the local governing council. I have wealth, inherited family wealth, status, prestige. I'm going to get into a conspiracy with some raggedy, blue-collar guys from Galilee on some no-name rabbi who was executed as a criminal. This is not what rich people do. And if he's not dead, how come no one saw him as a half-dead, bleeding, weakened Messiah walking around? How come we don't have any record of his natural death, something which would have surely have been noted, even if only by his enemies. And as I said previously, who in the end would preach a Messiah like this and call him, have the audacity to call him the prince of life and the conqueror of death if he didn't really die? So the women are given the comfort, the presentation of an interpretation of the empty tomb. He is alive, just like he said he would be. And that's intended to help them with the weakness of their fear. They are then in the tomb sent as witnesses. Having explained this event, the angel says, Do not be alarmed, verse 6. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. Now, verse 7, they're sent as witnesses. This, uh, as Calvin, Calvin called it, a temporary apostolic commission, Go. 
Tell the disciples, tell the men, all is not lost. It's not over. Their jobs aren't done. They still have work to do, much work to do. Just as I said in Mark 14, that you would all be scattered like sheep without a shepherd, but I, the shepherd, will rise on the third day. I'll go before you into Galilee. We'll meet there, we'll reconvene, and we'll make plans for the kingdom, just as I said we would. So the women are sent as witnesses. They're the first witnesses of Jesus' resurrection. The resurrection, they are the first ones to discover, is not the goal. It's not the end. It's a means to an end. It's a call to action. The risen Christ is a commissioning Christ. He's a sending Christ. He, he makes witnesses. Matthew's famous great commission is, Go ye into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The fear of the women was not, could not, must not be the final word. Life, discipleship, and the cause of the kingdom must go on. So they are sent as witnesses. They're sent with a message. The message was to take the message they received and repeat it. This is an act of faith. They're receiving the gospel, and they're to carry the gospel. Well, can we see him first? The angel has pronounced it. Go, take this message. Jesus is alive. And they're sent to a people, not just with the message, but to a people, to the apostles, the ten disciples who fled from Jesus when he was arrested, and Peter. I love how Peter gets special notice here. Peter was an emotional guy, mercurial fellow. When he was up, he was very up, and when he was down, he was very down. His emotions were all over the place, and you can imagine having denied him and wept bitterly as he did. He probably was on the verge of suicide. I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. I'm imagining he must have been fraught with, with self-loathing. Don't forget to tell Peter. He's part of this meeting, too. And they're sent, as Jesus said. So in the sending and the commissioning, there's a confirmation of the reliability of the testimony of the Lord Jesus himself. Just as he said in Mark 14 would be the case, that is what's going to happen. So the first scene is on the way to the tomb. The second scene is at and then in the empty tomb. And finally, we see the women fleeing from the empty tomb. And this is verse 8. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. What a way to end the gospel. What a way to end this, this story of the good news. These faithful women had ended in this way. To get around this, the scholars over the centuries, uncomfortable with the, this seemingly abrupt ending of Mark, have offered in the remaining verse is sort of a compendium or a mix-up, a mash-up of all the resurrection appearances that the other Gospels record. They're helpful. It's good reading. It's, it's good to study this, that, that part of the text. But Mark saw fit, I believe, to end at verse 8. On the fleeing women, their fear 
their trembling, their anxiety, and their silence. They run away physically with their feet, but they also run away mentally in their astonishment and bodily. They're trembling with fear. They literally have tremors. And spiritually, we know they didn't remain silent, but at least as Mark sees fit to end it, on this note of, of awkward, awkwardness, they're told to tell the disciples, and they don't. we step back a little bit, we realize that it isn't unusual for important biblical histories to end on an awkward note. In fact, the history of creation all the way to the end of 2 Kings, that's a, that's a long chunk of history right there. Many, many books in the Old Testament from Genesis to 2 Kings. You know how that ends? It ends with the anointed and chosen king of Judah in chains in, in Nebuchadnezzar's court as his vassal. Wow. What an ending. The ending of the book of Acts is a little awkward as well. It's, we're told that Paul is in prison for two years and somehow the gospel is going forth. We don't know how. We're told that it's unhindered, but we don't know what Paul is doing if he dies, how he dies, when he dies. Acts also has a sudden and abrupt ending. I think the closest example we have to Mark's awkward and abrupt ending is the book of Jonah, which ends with the prophet complaining, whining, moaning, and groaning that God was not true to his promise to destroy the wicked. Essentially placarding his religious racism for all to see. The Ninevites don't deserve to live. And God ends by saying something to the effect of, can I not have mercy on this great city which is filled with men and women and many cattle? What happens to Jonah? Does he change his mind? Does he come around to see things from God's point of view? I mean, Jonah does not end looking good for Jonah. And in fact, we have Similar to Mark, in church tradition, in church history, there are longer endings of Jonah which cleans up that sort of tidy, awkward, abrupt stop. It is possible that Mark included some softening words here and that those encouraging, softening words have been lost in history. I believe it's intentional, though, for three reasons. This story ends with the, women, with the scene of the women fleeing from the tomb and their abrupt statement of being silent in a way that sort of matches the abrupt beginning of Mark. Mark's gospel doesn't have any prehistory of Jesus. It doesn't include anything about his birth or nativity. It just said, this is the gospel. Let's get going. John the Baptist was in the wilderness. So matching Mark's abrupt beginning is Mark's abrupt ending. Also, in verse 8, we have, in just a few words, Mark picking up on some themes that have been characteristic of all of Jesus' followers throughout the gospel. Fear and silence. 
Again and again, the disciples and the followers of Jesus and even his enemies are afraid when they should be in love with and following and listening to the Lord. Again and again, they speak when they are told to be silent. They're silent when they're told to speak. Mark's purpose may be to highlight these two weaknesses and to end with these two weaknesses because it's characteristic of the people that will be reading this book. That even after Jesus rose from the dead, even after the report of of the empty tomb, even after hearing that he is alive, that his followers struggle with fear and with silence. Another reason he may have ended on this note without describing any of the appearances of Jesus to his followers is because Mark's special focus is on the crucified Messiah. Mark clearly believes that Jesus rose from the dead. The angel said, he is risen, make no mistake, he's alive. But the center of Mark's gospel, more than any of the other three gospels, is on the death of our Lord. He is the crucified king in Mark more than any other. The resurrection of Jesus is the reason why it is no longer time to be fearful. He was condemned to death and crucified as a messianic pretender. But the resurrection is God's vindication of Jesus. He is truly the king of Israel that people mocked him about. But it's in his crucifixion that we see the depths of what he came to do. He gave his life as a ransom for many, Mark 10.45, taking the cup of God's judgment, Mark 14.36, and bearing the pain of being forsaken of God on the cross, Mark 15.34. We end with an invitation then to discipleship. Mark comes to a sudden abrupt end by showing the fear and the silence of the women, I believe, to show us that you can do better, you must do better, we must do better, in spite of our fears, in spite of our desire to keep our mouths shut. We are to take the message, to speak up, and to be bold for the Lord. I think there's comfort here, too, for struggling followers. After the resurrection... People struggle to believe. After the resurrection, people struggle to witness. Failure is a reality for ongoing followers of Christ. Matthew's version of the gospel says, and some doubted. I think this is in part to show us that the resurrection and the gospel itself is such an absolutely mind-blowing event that it's impossible for us as humans to fully grasp and comprehend what it really means. It's such an awesome display of the power of God that we'd be fools to think that all just ends on a happy, smiling note, and now every problem is fixed and corrected in our lives. How about you? Are you afraid? You've heard the message. You've heard the fact. Will you be silent? I want to end with an illustration this morning. We've been talking about the reversal of the power of death and how death's grip has been loosened 
as Jesus rises from the dead. This is the empty tomb. And the illustration comes from the Old Testament. It's one of my favorite psalms. It's a psalm of David. It's Psalm chapter 16. And in Psalm 16, David speaks of his own frustration, his own discouragement, his own fear, and his own death. But beyond his own death, David in Psalm 16 sees ahead, prophetically, David is a prophet in Psalm 16. And he sees the death of the Messiah. And in verse 9 and 10, he says, You will not abandon your Holy One to the grave. This is the, this is the story I want to end with this morning. David, in the midst of all of his troubles, takes time in this prophetic poem Yes, speaking of himself, but even more, speaking of the greater David who is to come. He speaks of the confidence that God will not abandon his Holy One to the grave. To put it in terms of this morning's message, David says death will be reversed. That's what he says. He doesn't say death is eliminated. He doesn't say, I know you will not allow me to die. David's confidence wasn't that he wouldn't die, but that he wouldn't be abandoned to death. That though death may get its grip on him, death won't keep its grip on him. Though death may embrace him, death will and must release him. His hope was that he wouldn't be held in death, not for very long. He would be given to death, but he wouldn't be abandoned to death. What a terrible feeling it is to be abandoned in a relationship, to be lost, to not know where you are, to be kicked out. For our Savior, in rising, he reverses death and breaks its grip. And proves that David was right to have the confidence that he had that though Jesus would experience the humiliation of death for three days, he was not left there forever. Reversing the power of death, this is what the empty tomb means. This is what I believe it means. This is what Scripture says it means. What are you going to do with the empty tomb? What are you going to do with this information? How are you going to interpret Mark's story and the three scenes that we find our women in in this story? On the way to the tomb, at and in the tomb, and then fleeing from the tomb. I want to challenge you to respond with faith. I'm telling you what I think it means. This is what it means. Jesus is alive. His body wasn't stolen. He didn't just pass out and then walk away or get helped to walk away on his own. He died. Death held him in its grip for three days. And then he rose again. That's what happened. So important is this resurrection. So important is this interpretation of the empty tomb that Paul says that faith in Jesus is sheer madness and stupidity if it didn't happen. It's insanity to do what we're doing.
unless in fact Jesus actually rose from the dead, what we are doing is laughable. But if he did rise from the dead, Christ is proven to be the Son of God with power. If he did rise from the dead, Jesus of Nazareth, the crucified one, raises you, sinful men and women, to perfect creaturely fellowship with your creator God. If he did rise from the dead, you were given by faith Christ's perfect living righteousness, which is fully able to stand before the penetrating gaze of a holy God in judgment. If he did rise from the dead, you are guaranteed that God will not abandon you to the grave. That though death may embrace your body, the souls of believers are at their death made perfect in holiness and do immediately pass into glory. And that temporary intermediate separation of your soul and your body, your soul is in heaven in a disembodied state, in fellowship with God, beyond sin, beyond mourning, beyond loss, perfected and purified in all glory, but nevertheless separated from your body temporarily. When you are reunited to your body, you will dwell in a new heavens and a new earth forever in perfect and glorious fellowship with God and God's creation. By rising from the dead, Christ guarantees that your death will not be the last word So I want to encourage you to have faith. And secondly, I want to encourage you to have life. These women were living in the grip of death, though they were confronted with the reality that death had lost its grip on them. And this is the story of so many of us as Christians. Having tasted and seen that the Lord is good, having been baptized and having been confirmed in our faith as, as a young person or as an adult convert, as, as, as a walking, talking, living, breathing Christian, having experienced the risen Christ in our lives, nevertheless, we live like death is throttling us and strangling us. And the heavenly, exalted resurrection power, which is ours in Christ, we leave to the side and live as if death has the last word. By the look on my face, and by the look on some of your faces, it may as well be true. But Jesus says, no, I have the last word. The angel says, no, death does not have the last word. He is alive. He is not here. He is not amongst the dead. Jesus' life gets the last word, and we need to live like that. And I want to encourage you not only to believe that Jesus is alive, but live in the power of his resurrection. Let us pray. Father, as we bow in prayer this morning, we want to thank you for your holy word, for what it teaches us, I want to thank you for the challenge of your word and really the challenge of Mark's gospel, which is a, a sustained invitation to following Christ. I want to thank you for this challenging and uh, 
perplexing, mysterious ending of Mark. How it leaves us in some ways with more questions than answers, but also invites us to consider, invites us into the story. That these three scenes of the women are really, we need to see ourselves in these faithful but forgetful ladies, in these women who are weak with fear but who have been called to witness anyway. And these women who flee rather than follow the instructions that they were given. Lord, help us to to see this and to recognize for what it is that you are inviting us first to have faith in the resurrected Lord and then to live in the light and in the power of his resurrection. So this is my prayer for each and every one of us this morning. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit our website at www.mercyhillnj.org. We meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Church House located at 300 University Boulevard in Glassboro, off of Harvard Avenue, adjacent to the J. Harvey Rogers School and near Rowan University. We'd love for you to join us. Please see our website for directions. Thank you again for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast.